Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 212. Today's big Bible question, did Jesus tell his disciples that some demons could only be cast out by prayer or faith? So hello, friends. Happy Monday to you. Of course, I know that's weird to say. Most people don't look at Mondays as a particularly happy day. But I hope, you know, that today's Monday is as good and blessed a day for you as possible. May we count it all joy as this pandemic enters into its 4,784th week or something like that. Our Bible passages for today include Judges 10 and 11, Acts 14, Jeremiah 24, and Mark chapter 9. Our focus passage is in Mark 9 and concerns a very interesting incident in which a man comes and asks Jesus to heal and deliver his demonized son, uh, or a son that's uh, tormented by an unclean spirit. Now, the disciples try to heal the boy, but they utterly fail, which causes some sort of argument and chaos to break out among the people watching the disciples and the scribes. Jesus has been up on the Mount uh, Transfiguration with uh, Peter and John and James, and he comes onto this scene. Now, of course, Jesus heals and delivers the boy, and the disciples ask him later in private, like, hey, Jesus, why did we botch this so bad? Why did they fail? And it's a great question, because this incident happens after Jesus has sent his 12 disciples out and given them authority to cast out demons and unclean spirits. In other words, they had experience and success in this kind of ministry, and they had direct authorization from Jesus to do it, and yet they failed. Even more curious is that both Mark and Matthew record Jesus giving different answers to the questions of the disciples. So what do we have here? An error? A contradiction in the Bible? Well, I think neither of those things, actually. But let's let's read our Mark passage first, so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten him. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's um, set, set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowed them, Then a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, They were amazed and ran to greet him, and he asked them, What are you arguing with him about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away... It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this particular incident we're focusing on today, the son of the father who had an unclean spirit, it actually appears in three different places in scripture. Here in Mark 9, also in Matthew 17, and then in Luke 9. All three times this happens, uh, it's portrayed as happening right after the transfiguration. All three of these recountings, though, end in a slightly different way. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples ask why they failed, 
And they receive this answer from Jesus when he says in verse 29, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. In Matthew, however, the disciples receive a different answer. In Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus says, because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So Luke doesn't even record this post-deliverance conversation at all. His narrative just goes on to the next event. What gives here? What is the real key to this kind of supernatural ministry? Is it faith or is it prayer? Are we dealing with a misprint here, an error in the text? Is it proof that the Bible isn't inerrant? Well, I see two major options here. We're either, number one, dealing with some sort of misremembrance or a misprint or an error, or number two, the view I believe, Mark recorded about half of what Jesus said, and Matthew recorded about half of what Jesus said. And I think in this passage, we're actually dealing with the exact nature of eyewitness testimony and true history here. Rather than this being a sign of contradiction, I see it as a sign of authenticity. This and many other texts like it in the Bible, where we get several different perspectives from different gospel writers on the same event, demonstrate that there was no massive and systematic conspiracy in the early days of the church to sanitize and harmonize the text of the four gospels to make them agree exactly with each other. Maybe you've heard of Dan Brown and some of the books he's written where he alleges that the early church changed the Bible. Or maybe you've heard of the theory that Jesus was initially just a good teacher, but later on his disciples, um, I mean, later on people after his disciples started viewing him as the son of God and they embellished him into this great legend. But that's not, there's no textual evidence of such a thing happening. There's none whatsoever. The disciples viewed Jesus as God from the very beginning, according to the textual evidence that we have. And there's no textual evidence that that the early church changed the Bible in significant ways, even though it was handwritten. And there's definitely some differences in the text due to that being handwritten and not Xeroxed or whatever, but there's no evidence of a conspiracy here. And we got to remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, different guys, different perspectives on these different events. These were written at different times. And if you've ever studied eyewitness testimony, you will know that it is very suspicious when several different testimonies exactly corroborate in every detail. Such happenings can reek of some sort of conspiracy or collusion because genuine eyewitnesses that are telling the truth will differ with each other in what they see and how they perceive it. Now, I'm not saying they'll contradict each other. I'm saying they will each give a different perspective on the same event. And that's how eyewitness testimony works. And look, I'm not an expert, but I will say I have studied it to an extent as a former master's level student in criminal justice. Now, I didn't graduate with my master's degree in criminal justice. That is the time I was called into ministry and went to seminary and graduated from seminary. But when I was called into seminary, I was at the University of Alabama graduate school in criminal justice attempting to become, I don't know, a detective, FBI agent, U.S. marshal, or, you know, probably a member of the Avengers. Now, my belief here is that we aren't dealing with a contradiction because neither Mark nor Matthew contradicts each other in the least, but rather 
This is something like a puzzle. I think it's a divine puzzle, actually. One that has been orchestrated to appear in Scripture by the Holy Spirit exactly as it does, and it's meant to teach us a profound truth. Jesus probably did say both things to his disciples. The reason they couldn't cast out the demon was because of prayer and faith. And in a very real sense, as Jesus is about to show us, both of these things are inextricably bound. He essentially said the same exact thing. Now, I get that belief from one of my favorite parables, which is Luke chapter 18. Now, it's one of my favorite parables because I can be a little bit dull. And at the very beginning of the parable, Jesus tells us exactly what it means. So I don't have to stretch my brain and and come to some dumb conclusion. He like makes it easy, easy, easy to to discern the meaning of Luke 18. But it also teaches a very profound truth in prayer that we often miss in the modern church. Some answers to prayer only come by persisting persistence. Jesus explains it this way in Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't care, fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, the point here is that we should always pray and never give up. Or as Jesus puts it in Luke 11, we should ask and keep on asking until we're answered. Knock and keep on knocking until the door is open. Seek and keep on seeking until we find. It is this kind of importunity, not opportunity, importunity, to use the word that the mighty men of God from yesteryear used, that brings powerful answers to prayer. Now, importunity, if it's a word you're not familiar with, it means persistence, especially to the point of annoyance. And Jesus teaches us to pray in this exact manner, using an illustration of a widow that annoys an unjust judge until the judge answers her. Now, I don't think Jesus is exactly saying, that we should annoy God in our persistence. And honestly, I don't think we could. Um, But he is inviting us into a lifestyle of persisting prayer that never gives up until the prayer is answered. Now, you might be asking, what does this have to do with our question today? Well, it could be argued here that the disciples did not have success with this unclean spirit because they gave up and didn't keep praying. It's also possible that Jesus was commending to them a lifestyle of prayer. In other words, this unclean spirit refused to yield and come out because these guys had not been living a lifestyle of prayer like Jesus had, making it his habit to go out late at night and pray through the night and and be a man of persisting prayer throughout his life and ministry. Now, both perspectives on prayer actually have merit here, but what about the faith question? 
Why does Matthew say the lack is in the area of faith and Mark says it's in the area of prayer? Well, let's look again at the ending of Luke chapter 18 and the final question that Jesus asked. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Hmm, this is a parable about prayer and faith doesn't come up at all until the very last question. So what kind of faith is Jesus talking about here? And I believe the crystal clear contextual answer is the kind of faith that results in persisting and persevering prayer that never gives up. Jesus is telling us here that faith looks like a lifestyle of persistent, continuous prayer, always praying, never giving up. Persisting prayer and faith are inextricably bound in the theology of Jesus, and therefore the disciples could not cast the unclean spirit out because they were not walking in the faith that is expressed by a lifestyle of unrelenting prayer. Now we could take that and phrase it the other way too, I think. The disciples couldn't deliver this dear young boy because they were not living a life marked by persistent prayer and thus lacked the faith produced by such a lifestyle. So how do we persist today when faced with the same sorts of spiritual obstacles? Well, the answer is by faithful persisting prayer and by persisting prayer that demonstrates and produces great faith. So my dear friends, overcome the anxiety you are facing right now Overcome the doubts and the things that assail your soul by persisting in prayer. And when you persist in prayer, faith will come from that. And faith also comes by hearing the word. So fuel your prayers, as George Mueller would say to us, by faith that comes from the word of God. And those of you that are out there struggling, and I've heard from several of you by email, and I'm praying for you. Those of you that are out there fighting and struggling, this is a key for you. Not that you earn the favor of the Lord, but as you always pray and never give up, there's going to be faith that comes and rises in you. And that faith is going to fuel the persisting prayer, which is going to cause more faith. And that is the lifestyle that overcomes pandemics and unclean spirits that are stubborn to come out and every other obstacle we face. Remember, this is the lifestyle that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Son of God, lived on this earth in order to overcome. And if that's the lifestyle he had to live, I don't think there's any way around it for us. So friends, teachers, good people out there listening to this, Let us be reminded and encouraged by this call to persist in prayer. Because when we do this, we will overcome, as promised not by me, but by King Jesus himself. May the Lord give you the grace to continue in this daily. Judges chapter 10, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After Abimelech, Tola son of Puas, son of Dodo, became judge and began to deliver Israel, He was from Issachar and lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Tola judged Israel 23 years and when he died was buried in Shamir. After him came Jair the Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 towns in Gilead which are still called Jair's villages today. When Jair died he was buried in Camon. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the god of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. 
They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. They shattered and crushed the Israelites that year. And for 18 years, they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed, so they cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God and worshipped the Baals. And the Lord said to the Israelites, When the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, Did I not deliver you from them? But you have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. But the Israelites said, We have sinned. Deal with us as you see fit. Only rescue us today. So they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worshipped the Lord. And he became weary of Israel's misery. The Ammonites were called together and they camped in Gilead. So the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, Which man will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. Judges chapter the 11, verse 1. <laughs> I gotta say this, I shouldn't comment between Bible passages, but Judges 11, verse 1 is one of the most unintentionally funny passages in the Bible to me. Maybe it's not funny to you, it's just... It just always has sounded funny to me. Excuse me. Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. Some time later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to him, Come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, Didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And they replied to Jephthah, That's true, but now we turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to them, If you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is our witness if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander, and Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammonite, the Ammonites, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight me in my land? The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok in the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell him, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us travel through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused, so Israel stayed in Kadesh. Then they traveled through the wilderness and around the lands of Edom and Moab. They came to the east side of the land of Moab, 
encamped on the other side of the Arnon, but did not enter into the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, Please let us travel through your land to our country. But Sihon would not trust Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sihon gathered all his troops, camped at Jahaz, and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Sihon and all his troops to Israel, and they defeated him. So Israel took possession of the entire land of the Ammonites who lived in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, and will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you can have whatever your God Chemosh conquers for you, and we can have whatever the Lord our God conquers for us? Now, are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived three hundred years in Heshbon and Aror and their surrounding villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide between today the Israelites and the Ammonites. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent to him. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over to the the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against him, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated twenty of their cities with a great slaughter from Aror all the way to the entrance of Minith and to abel Keramim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. When Jephthah went home to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You've devastated me. You've brought great misery on me. I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. Go, he said. And he sent her away two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, and he kept the vow he made about her, and she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became a custom in Israel that four days each year the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now pause here for a bit of commentary, because I forgot we were going to read all of Judges 12 today. Did Jephthah do the right thing? Answer, no. He sinned. He made a vow. It was a rash vow. Should he have kept his vow? No. When you make a vow to do something that is sinful and forbidden by God, it is not honorable to keep that vow whether you promise to God or not. The fact of the matter is the guilt of Jephthah promising to God and failing to keep his promise would have been on his head which is exactly where it should have been for that 
foolish and rash vow. Jephthah should have paid the price, not his daughter. That was foolish. That was wrong. Jephthah did wrong. And I believe the Bible sort of demonstrates that to us. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds who tend my people. You have scattered my flock, banished them, and have not attended to them. I am about to attend to you because of your evil acts. This is the Lord's declaration. I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where I have banished them, and I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. I will raise up shepherds over them who will tend them. They will no longer be afraid or discouraged, nor will any be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign as king wisely and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Look, the days are coming, the Lord's declaration, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where I had banished them, they will dwell once more in their own land. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me and all my bones tremble. I have become like a drunkard, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, the land mourns because of the curse, and the grazing lands in the wilderness have dried up. Their way of life has become evil, and their power is not rightly used, because both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, their way will seem like slippery paths in the gloom. They will be driven away and fall down there, for I will bring disaster on them, the year of their punishment. This is the Lord's declaration. Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw something disgusting. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Among the prophets of Jerusalem also, I saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers and none turns his back on evil. They are all like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says concerning the prophets. I am about to feed them wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord of armies says. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the Lord's mouth. They keep on saying to those who despise me, The Lord has spoken. You will have peace. They have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of his heart, no harm will come to you. For who has stood in the counsel of the, of the Lord to see and hear his word? Who has paid attention to his word and obeyed? Look, a storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone out, a whirling storm. It will whirl about the heads of the wicked. The Lord's anger will not turn away until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. In time to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send out these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. If they had really stood in my counsel, they would have enabled my people to hear my words and would have turned them from their evil ways and their evil deeds. Am I a God who is only near? This is the Lord's declaration, and not a God who is far away. Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The Lord's declaration. I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. 
I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the minds of the prophets prophesying lies, prophets of the deceit of their own minds? Through their dreams that they tell one another, they plan to cause my people to forget my name as their ancestors forgot my name through Baal worship. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream, but the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully, for what is straw compared to grain? This is the Lord's declaration. Is not my word like fire? This is the Lord's declaration, and like a hammer that pulverizes rock. Therefore take note, I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who steal my words from each other. I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who use their own tongues to make a declaration. I am against those who prophesy false dreams, the Lord's declaration, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It was not I who sent or commanded them, and they are of no benefit at all to these people. This is the Lord's declaration. Now when these people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You will respond to them, what is the burden? I will throw you away. This is the Lord's declaration. As for the prophet, priest, or people who say the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man in his household. This is what each man is to say to his friend and to his brother. What has the Lord answered or what has the Lord spoken? But no longer refer to the burden of the Lord, for each man's word becomes his burden, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of armies, our God. Say to the prophet, What has the Lord answered you, or what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord, then this is what the Lord says, because you have said the burden of the Lord, and I specifically told you not to say the burden of the Lord, I will surely forget you. I will throw you away from my presence, both you and the city that I gave you and your ancestors. I will bring on you everlasting disgrace and humiliation that will never be forgotten. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, staying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you, that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food in your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. 
Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a considerable time with the disciples. Amen. That was the word of the Lord. Friends, I hope that it was a deep encouragement to you. May the Lord bless you. May he be with you. May he protect you and heal you and hold you in the palm of his hand. Good day and Godspeed.